you would stand, please, to honor the word of God as I read for you Jude 8 through 13. Jude 8 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord. Yet, in the same way, these men, also by dreaming, defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Verse 11. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are men who are hidden reefs in your love feast when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. So ends the reading of God's word. May we be blessed by it together. You may be seated. Those are some encouraging, inspiring words, are they not? As we begin this morning, I want to share with you something a little bit lighthearted to uh, counteract all that heaviness because we're going to come back to the heaviness in just a moment. But I've come to learn something quite profound that you might like to know. I share with you, share it with you now. And that is this, that there seems to be a stark love or hate relationship when it comes to, you ready? Sauerkraut. Or as some call it, pickled cabbage. It would seem that people either love it or hate it when I, when I have the opportunity to talk about it. There's not a lot of in-between. You either see people just piling it on their plates or people avoiding it like it's some kind of plague. Those that dislike it will cite that sauerkraut well is um, well sour, right? It's not pleasant to their palates, palates. I heard one person describe sauerkraut as eating old, stinky, pickled, soured, spoiled cabbage. And I guess if that was what it was, then it would be bad news. But for those of us who like it, you can kind of tell which camp I'm in, we will tell you that there are a number of health benefits that come as a result of partaking of that pickled produce. Sauerkraut is loaded with both vitamin C and vitamin K. It's high in fiber. It's got uh, probiotics, little microbes that help you improve your digestion. I read that it is a time-honored remedy for canker sores, although I've never had a canker sore and tried to put sauerkraut on it. I've also read in that one Civil War physician claimed that by giving his patient sauerkraut, the rate of death and disease decreased, so I'm not sure. Now, why do I bring up the subject of sauerkraut with you this morning? I know our elders staring at me like, yes, let's make your point here, buddy. Let me suggest to you that this letter of Jude is sort of analogous to sauerkraut. It is a strange book. Let me suggest to you that there are some things in this epistle that upon first reading do not taste quite particularly well. Yet I submit to you that there are tremendous benefits as we partake of it together. 
So while there are some often strange accounts in this particular letter, points that are being made by Jude, we are to know that by virtue of this being the word of God, by being inspired by the Holy Spirit, this is a, a statement of the grace of God to us. There are nutrients here that we need to partake of because they will help the health of the body of Christ. Because of some of the oddities, as well as the very dark and stern language of this letter, Jude has been regarded by many as the most neglected book of all the New Testament. So it makes me happy that we're going through it, because then we can't be claimed to be those who neglect it. Consider that even last week there was a message about angels, and when you talk about those angels there in verse 6, and that they left their own domain and their proper abode, and we're trying to figure out what is Jude talking about. They, they neglected, we said, their God-given places of authority. But the language, again, of Jude is stern and sometimes intense, and so what is he getting after? In our text this morning, we find more of this austere and fantastical language as Jude is determined to give to us an account, not of the past, not of historical apostates. He did that in verses 5 through 7. But now I want you to try to put yourself in the hearer's shoes. Jude is speaking of apostates in the present, currently present in the church. And it is because that there was both apostasy and apostates in the church, both false teachers and false teachings, that Jude writes this letter, exhorting believers to do, as we've already seen in verse 3, to what? Contend earnestly for the faith. And we need to be reminded this is no small task. Jude is asking us to fight for <coughs> to fight for the faith for the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's asking us to, to take up arms, as it were, to guard and defend the deposit of faith that believers have received from the apostles, from Christ himself, and from those men of God that have gone before. These are the words that Christ chose for himself, by himself, to himself, to bear witness of his life. But now, in the course of time, there had been teachers who had come to who were nothing more than in the church who were nothing more than wolves in sheep's clothing. There were those in the church undermining the faith, denying our Lord Jesus Christ. Recall Jude's language in verse 4 that such ones as these, they do not blast their way into the church. They do not open the door and say, let's now embrace all of these bad theologies and join with me. No, it says they what? They crept into the church. They come in by stealth. They come in craftily. They come in with their uh, with by sneaking and trying to now plot and plan the demise of the faith. Beginning in verse 8, we see Jude set out to give to his readers now a fuller accounting, a clearer description of those in the church who may at first appear to be assets to the church and yet in reality are nothing more than antagonists to the church and to Jesus Christ himself. Now, I had a difficult time in outlining this passage. It took me a lot longer than it should have, for upon careful examination, if you look at verses 8 through 13, you will find that there are at least 20 descriptions of the life and character of an apostate. Now, I want to note those for you. They're in big letters so that you can read them. You can just go and... In, from verses 5 through 7, there are three things. They're unbelieving, they're rebellious, and they're sexually perverted. 
We go on in verse 8, they're called dreamers, defilers of the flesh, rejectors of authorities, and revilers of angelic majesties. In verse 9, they're argumentative. In verse 10, they're without understanding. They're instinctual. They're like unreasoning animals. In verse 11, they have gone the way of Cain. That's not a compliment. They have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam, and they have perished in the rebellion of Korah. In verse 12, they are hidden reefs. They're caring only for themselves. They are clouds without water carried along by winds. They are autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, verse 13, casting up their own shame like foam. And finally, they are referred to as wandering stars. Now, that's quite a list. And I think it's helpful to see that list, but I don't think many of you would take kindly to a 20-point sermon this morning. And so we're going to come at this a different way. We're going to take all of this in four broad points in which Jude gives us an account of present-day apostates. This is what you will find true in part or in totality of those who are or have fallen away from the faith. And I say present-day apostates because false teachers and false teachings were not a problem simply with the first century. It has been an ongoing problem for the church. In fact, I would say even more so here in the 21st century, it has grown worse as the church has grown. In this day of broad social media saturation, in this day where we have social media influencers, times in which we have a proliferation of what we call evangelical so-called celebrities. Why would any preacher want to be a celebrity? I'm not sure. Where men, many of which carry their influence, not because of their fidelity to the word of God, but because of their natural abilities, their, their charisma. We need this message of Jude to remind us and help us identify ungodly leaders that are in the church And so in our text, we find four avenues by which we might recognize apostate teachers. And we can do so by these means. We can look at the apostate's deceptive authority. We can look at the apostate's debased attitude. We can look at the apostate's dishonest ambition. And finally, we look at the apostate's distinguishable attributes, those things that clearly define them. There is much to consider in these verses, and so this morning... We're going to take the first one, looking at verses 8 through 9. That'll be our text this morning. And look at this first identifying marker of a true apostate. And the first one that is listed is their deceptive authority. Let's look at verse eight, verses 8 and 9 once again. Yet, in the same way as these men, and by the way, that phrase literally should read this. It should yet in the same way these ones, because it's referring to apostate Israel from verse 5, apostate angels from verse 6, and apostate heathens from verse 7. Yet in the same way these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. And we'll deal with verse 9 in just a moment. The point is that apostates generally display similar ungodly traits throughout every generation. And so we saw what they looked like in the the past, and now we will look for that now in the present. And now Jude is stating additional ungodly traits as those that were given to us in verses 5 through 7. Again, that they were unbelieving, they were rebellious, and they are sexually perverted. Now Jude is going to flesh out, lay out the fact that apostates, and here's the key, 
Apostates depend upon a different and unreliable and ungodly sources of authority. They do not depend upon the word of God. They do not look to Jesus Christ and his word as their sole authority. We know this because we've already been told this in verse 4. A reminder from verse 4, such false teachers have done what? They have denied our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Instead of the word of God, we're going to see that apostates will start referring to extra-biblical, non-biblical means of stating their authority by dreams, it says here in our text. We'll look at that in a moment. By personal urges and instincts. This is what governs and guides them in what they say and what they do. What are these ungodly sources of authority that serve as indicators that a person is an apostate? Well, the first indicator that uh, there is an apostate among you is that they are, uh, I use this term, they are insidious. Why do I use the word insidious? Because all of these points are going to start with an I, and that's the one that worked for this one. The word insidious means they, that they intend to entrap or trick or beguile. And apostates are intent to trick people into believing they have the authority of God based upon something other than the word of God. They use some other extra biblical or subjective means. Anytime you walk outside of scripture, you are now in a dangerous place. And if you're doing it on purpose, it is insidious. It is dangerous. It is destructive. And so our text reads that the first way this insidiousness has demonstrated itself is that it says that they've also by dreaming rather than depending upon the word of God alone for their teaching they were looking to their own dreams Jude says that they were relying on their dreaming false teachers will often claim that they have heard from God right I have heard from God I've heard from God how in a dream he spoke to me in a vision. And what is that seeking to convey? I have authority. I can't, uh, and what is it saying? I have authority from God. God gave me the stream, but you can't look it up. You can't take it back to the word of God. What I was told is not in here. And so they're looking to a different source. What makes apostates so insidious and so dangerous and so damaging then to the church is their, is their dreaming is, again, extra-biblical, not found in Scripture. Such false teachers claim that what they dream then is a, you ready? You'll hear this sometime. I have a new truth. I have a fresh word from God. It's a new truth. If, if this new truth does not line up then with what God's word has already declared, they'll say to you, well, what God has revealed to me trumps whatever else has been written. They won't generally say it that way, but that is the implication. And so these false teachers in Jude's day would gather their congregations together on the Lord's day. They would stand before the people and they would deliver a message. But rather than enrolling some Old Testament scroll, rather than reading from a, a, a copy of a New Testament letter or a copy of one of the gospel accounts, or rather than reciting one of the apostolic, apostolic creedal statements like Colossians 1, 15 through 18, they would get up and talk, and they would say, I had a dream, and God told me, and now you must listen to what I'm saying. 
I just want to tell you, if I ever tell you I had a dream and you need to listen to me as the voice of God because of the dream, just stand up in the middle and walk out. I didn't say that, so nobody can do that. Ultimately, apostates are phony visionaries. I suspect that some such apostates do indeed have dreams, but their dreams are not inspired by the Holy Spirit. Most likely, it's inspired by eating some bad pizza the night before they decided to preach. But some have a more sinister influence. Some base their dreams upon their own imaginations, and I would dare say that some are even inspired by demonic forces themselves. There would also be those false teachers that would go around and say they had a dream, and they didn't have a dream at all. They're simply using the phraseology because they think they can appeal to Scripture to say, if I had a dream and I say that it's from God and, and I'm charismatic enough, you will listen to me. They would appeal to the events of Pentecost as recorded in Acts chapter 2, verses 16 through 17, as the, as the grounds by which to trick people that they were now speaking the words of God. In Acts chapter 2, verses 16 through 17, you should have that, it says this, but, in, uh, but this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel, and it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. By saying that their dreams were from God, they would substitute then their false authority for God's true scriptural authority. And let me just lay this out. We need to be careful. We may not ever say, I had a dream that trumps God's authority. But we will appeal at times to sources that are not authoritative by which to say, now I can justify the way that I act or the way that I think. So we beware, beware when a preacher or a teacher or a professing believer says to you that they had a dream from God. There are many in what we would deem as having been at least conservative Christian circles, so many people saying, I had a dream from God. And they're not just in the charismatic church. They're found in even uh, more conservative churches that we might be familiar with. God did, in fact, use dreams and visions to start the church. That's what the Acts chapter 2 Pentecost statement was about. He will also use them again during the tribulation according to scripture. But right now, the only rule for faith and practice, all that we have according to scripture, is the word of God. There is nothing else. In the Old Testament, the use of the word dreamer, as is used here, so Jude might have this in mind, was generally associated with a false teacher. By calling these men those who are dreaming or calling them dreamers, he is associating them with false teachers. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, listen to what was written. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to see, uh, testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Just stop there for a moment. There are dreamers that are going to claim they have something from God, and it's going to look good. It's going to maybe come to pass, but if it contradicts what God has revealed, you are not to follow them. Verse 4, 
You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him, and you shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him. And I love this statement. Cling to him. Do not cling to those who have fantastical dreams, who say wondrous things, but if they're contradicting what God's word says, cling not to them, but to the Lord alone. Verse 5, but that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be what? Put to death, because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God, who brought, uh, brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery to seduce you from the way in which your Lord, the Lord your God commanded you to walk, so you shall purge the evil from among you. When you have teachers, you can go into a Christian bookstore and there are apostate works there. You read something that contradicts the word of God, purge it, be done with it. But such a warning is not limited to the Old Testament. We find Paul addressing the same thing with similar language as that of Jude. Look at Colossians chapter 2, verses 18 through 19. Paul writes, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on what? Visions that he has seen. Taking his stand, claiming he's somebody from the Lord based upon a vision he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. Apostates are false dreamers, not dreaming the things God has given, some seeking to use their dreams as a substitute for the word of God. So when you hear someone speak of their dreams from God, what do you do? It should be a warning sign. Your little, your little indicator light, like on your dashboard going off, you should pull over and examine what's taking place. So what's the second indication that an apostate may be in your midst? This is kind of an interesting one. It says, that we're going to say they are immoral. They defile the flesh is what Jude writes. Now, the word flesh here speaks of the physical body, that which you will do in and to one's physical body. And the idea would be that you do this for, for pleasure. Uh, some people do things to their bodies uh, for pain, that self-abasement that we just read of. The word defile means literally to stain or to contaminate or to corrupt. And in the New Testament, when the word flesh and, and uh, defile are put together, the connotation is any moral or physical defilement, but that especially of sexual sin. Immor immoral, that is not moral, not right behavior according to the revealed and standard of God is ultimately what? It is a defying, it is a rejection of God's word. It's taking us right back to verse 4. They are denying our only master and Lord Jesus Christ in what he has said. It is a saying to God, I do not like and I will not abide by what you have set as the standards and boundaries for moral and sexual behavior. Are there apostates in the church? There are. Apostates will inevitably be immoral. But our problem is, is that sometimes the immorality may not always be publicly known. It's interesting to me as you read of scandals that have taken place in the church, even the evangelical church, there were always people who knew what was going on 
but failed to report it. So while a congregation may not have known of the immorality of one of their church leaders, I promise you there was someone in that church who knew and simply did not say anything. How do we know that apostates will be immoral? Because according to God's word, without truly knowing God, without having any real means of restraining their passions and lust, they will always pursue what? They will pursue power, sex, monetary gain. Note down, down in verse 19 for just a moment. Notice what Jude says there about apostates. They are what? They are devoid of the spirit. If you do not have the spirit of God, you cannot please God. That's why one of the calls from the pulpit is constantly make sure you know that you are you belong to Christ. Make sure that the spirit of God dwells in you. Make sure that the deeds of the flesh are not what's evident, but the fruit of the spirit. Do you experience the fruit of the spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Because if those are not in you, you're devoid of the spirit. The deeds of the flesh will manifest themselves. Without the spirit of God, they are left in the words of 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, to indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires. To indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires. I would say that that's true not only of apostates, but anyone who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ. Immorality will manifest itself somehow, some way. I would have you notice what the word of, that the word of God links all sorts of activities with immorality. You might be thinking, well, we're talking about just some kind of sexual immorality. What is immorality? It is anything that's not moral. And notice how the word of God links things in, in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. All of these things link together. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Any of these things would demonstrate that you are pursuing not the spirit of God, but your own flesh. You're defiling the flesh. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Make sure that you understand this truth about yourself, that this isn't true of yourself, but we recognize that an apostate will have this kind of pursuit. Look with me at Galatians 5, 19 through 21, another one of Paul's list, and these are indicators of being in the flesh, of satisfying the flesh, that which defiles the flesh. Notice how all of these things link back to our statement as those who defile the flesh. Now, the deeds of the flesh, Paul writes, are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. Now, we say all of those, and some of you may be sitting here thinking, those are really not my issue, right? I've got, I'm, I'm staying away from those. But Paul gets a little bit deeper in this list. He drills down to, to capture, I think, everybody who's reading. Enmities. Strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions. None of those are ever from the Spirit of God. 
That is apostate behavior. You may not be an apostate, but that's apostate behavior. Envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things, similar language as before, will not inherit the kingdom of God. You will not see Christ. In other words, to partake and participate in one of these things will put you as well on a slippery slope of engaging in a number of other such practices when a person speaks of their dreams then or there are areas of their lives that are lived in some kind of immoral or impure state those are two indications that he may be an apostate well let's look at the next indication of an apostate they are insubordinate notice it says and reject authority and again you know as i read through all of this uh, we see a culture that fits all of this right But we're not after the culture. The church is supposed to be influencing the culture for Christ, but rather the reason why we say, hey, all of these things we can see in our culture, the culture has been influencing the church, and that's how the apostates get in. They are insubordinate. The inevitable result of seeking to satisfy the desires of the flesh, be it for power, greed, sex, that to do so you must reject God's authority, right? You can't do anything of the deeds of the flesh without rejecting God's authority. There's no way to justify that that list of uh, the deeds of the flesh without rejecting God's authority. The verb reject here speaks of, listen to this. Again, I say the similarities between the culture. The verb reject means to, uh, of tearing something down some existing standard of authority. You want to tear down some existing standard of authority. This is insubordination. This is an unwillingness to be under or subordinate to a rightful established authority. And beloved, we've seen in our culture the past two years uh, being filled with radical groups who are seeking to do what? They're seeking to tear down the laws, the institutions, the buildings, even the statues of our country. Why? Because they are rejecting the authority upon which this country was founded. Why? So they can substitute their own standards, their own authority, in which case uh, actually leads to increased racism and anarchy and does not uh, provide for any kind of safety anywhere. So why do I say that? Because in like manner, those who want to live according to their own new standards must do anything they can to tear down or reject God's authority. And so, again, I've tried to make this point as we go through this. This is an application. You do not have to be an apostate to engage in apostasy, that you can somehow get trapped into some of these teachings where now you're saying I'm going to I'm going to justify my behavior even though I know God's word says something different I'm going to justify my behavior that's thinking like an apostate I'm going to tear this down so that I can justify the way I want to live the word authority comes from the Greek word interestingly enough curios not curious but curios which we translate as lord we are told we worship Kyrio Iesu Christo, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
so set our apostates to rule their own lives, they refuse to submit themselves to the authority, to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And they have to find ways to undermine that. The book is old. It's archaic. The, why would we follow some of these things? We're going to, we're going to live in the now. We're going to put aside that, that, that uh, thinking that's behind the times. We've heard a lot of that. Beloved, this is in part the reason why we read in 1 Thessalonians 5.14 that the church is to admonish the unruly. Why do we have this command to admonish the unruly, those who show a propensity to be unrulable, ungovernable, or undisciplined when it comes to the authority of the church and her leaders? They are to be called out. Why? Why would Paul say, I want you to admonish, call out the unruly? Because if you allow them to continue, it takes you down a path of what? Apostasy. That might even be an apostate that you need to root out before he or she does any more damage. So we watch for people who refuse to submit themselves to the orthodox, to the straight historical teaching of the word of God. And by the way... Some of you are familiar with certain persons in the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention, who have been promoting and allowing, uh, promoting the idea of allowing women preachers. This is apostate teaching. It is straight out apostate teaching. Additionally, some of the persons promoting those ideas have been noted the, the, how they're justifying this. You can go and look it up. I'm not going to name names now, but I, I can get you things. They're saying, I had a dream from God. So they have a dream from God that says, now I can do this that has not ever been orthodox or historical or according to the word of God, and I'm going to justify my insubordinate behavior. That's a danger. That is a cause for alarm. These are indicators that those who teach such things are either apostates or falling into apostasy. Well, there's a fourth indication of an apostate in the midst of a congregation. And that is found in verses, the, the end of verse 8 into verse 9, and that is that they are irreverent. They are irreverent. Notice what they do. And this is actually mind-boggling. You look at this list. They revile angelic majesties. A human being has the audacity to revile an angelic majesty, whatever that means, right? Well, let's see what it means. The word revile, that verb, is from the Greek verb, let's see if you recognize this, blasphemeo. And it means to, well, if you had to guess, to speak blasphemy, to slander, to speak evil of. And so he's saying that there are those in the church that are so arrogant, so bold, that they will speak evil against God's angelic majesties. Now, angelic majesties in our text translates the word doxas, and that is the Greek word meaning glory or glories. It is sometimes used in the New Testament to speak simply of God's glories or God's majesty, but in context here, along with the parallel passage of 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, it's clear that angels are in view. So what does it mean to speak evil, to blaspheme God's majestic angels or these angelic majesties beloved to revile and slander god's angels let's see if you've sensed the pattern here what what have every one of these things had in common 
They're all a rejection of the word of God. To revile and slander God's angels, God's messengers, is to reject the message they bring to humanity from God. Thus, to reject and revile God's angels is to reject the authority of Jesus Christ, which Jude has already mentioned these do in verse 4. But by this statement, Jude has in view then not only the rejection of the authority of Jesus in relation to his earthly ministry, they're somehow rejecting Christ, his ministry is recorded in the Gospels, but they're rejecting the whole authoritative word of God, including the Old Testament, the law of Moses and the writings, because this would have been the bulk of the scriptures that were used by Jude in the early church. This makes Jude's reference to angelic majesties or these glorious ones particularly interesting. Generally speaking, and some of you, I know this is a sharp group, so some of you are going to see right through this, my leading of the witnesses. But generally speaking, when we consider the account of the giving of the law of, uh, of God to Moses on Mount Sinai, what do you envision? God giving the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. I mean, this kind of, it just reads that way, correct? God gives Moses the tablets. God speaks to Moses uh, the, the fullness of the law that he would write down and communicate to Israel. God did give Moses the law, but the scriptures inform us that God used angelic intermediaries to do the job. We get a hint of this in the Old Testament from Deuteronomy 33, verse 22. Note what it says there. We read, the Lord, Yahweh, came from Sinai and down uh, to them, Israel, from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came from the midst of what? 10,000 holy ones at his right hand. There was flashing lightning for them. So he's surrounded by a host of angels as he comes from Sinai to give to, to Israel the law. And we ha he had with him these, these angels. Who were they? Well, they, we find in the New Testament many references to the Lord communicating and conferring his law to his people via angels, angelic majesties. Note with me in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. So what are we're talking about? What has God's word said? If you look at chapter one, it's this recitation of Old Testament verses. For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not what? Drift away. What is that? That we do not become apostate, that we do not fall away. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable. What words were spoken through angels? We'll look at that. And every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. So if we don't listen to what the angels communicated, he says in verse 3, I should have had it up there, how then shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation conferred to us, communicated to us, not by angels, but by the very Son of God? That was the whole argument in Hebrews chapter 1. Well, what was the word spoken? And interesting, one more comment. This, if the word spoken through angels, not by angels, they didn't come up with it. It was through angels. 
Note what, uh, what is it that they spoke. It was the law of God. We read in Galatians 3.19, why, why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained, having been set in, in stone, having been consecrated through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Why, why do we need to know this? Some of you are like, okay, The law was given to Moses, but now you're telling us angels were involved with that. Why do we need to know this? Because this was important to Jude. He said there were false teachers who were discrediting the very words given by God to angels through whom the law was revealed to God's people. Because of Jude, Jude is getting after this fact that apostates will slander, speak evil of the very messengers God used to communicate to the people the divine revelation of his law. And so what he's saying is there, when they revile the angels, when they revile, I'm going to take it one step back, when an apostate um, speaks evil against a messenger of God, that's what angels are, they seek to discredit not only that messenger, but the message they convey. There are some horrific attacks going on on, on some uh, well-known pastors that we would, would love and appreciate their ministries. And what is it? There's a reviling of solid messengers of God. Why do they want to do that? Because they want to discredit their message. Again, it is a rejection then not simply of of the angels, but the authoritative word of Christ so that they might rely on their own teachings to govern how they think and behave. In other words, apostates are irreverent to God. They are irreverent to his word, irreverent to his messengers, whether that be angelic messengers or human. Now, to illustrate just how irreverent apostates can be, Jude enters in verse 9 with something quite interesting he makes a contrast between their behavior being ready to say evil bad things against those god had created to give this message to with the behavior of one by the name of michael he's identified for us in verse 9 as being an archangel he is the archangel as far as we can tell from what we learn throughout scripture michael is presently god's most powerful angel And he's actually assigned in Daniel chapters 10 and 12 as a protector of God's people. So this is a being that you do not want to mess with. Michael is a a powerhouse. Michael is a force to be reckoned with, the archangel, the highest of the angels. But interesting in our text, being such a mighty angel in power and prestige, you would think that such an angel as that, If he were to be confronted by Satan, or if he were to confront Satan, this should be a no-brainer. This is a slam dunk. Michael should have every right and authority and position to simply call out Satan for, for his wrongdoing. Surely he could revile such a one. But notice in verse 9 that Michael refused to be irreverent. There's a lot of similarities, by the way, here. It says, he was, he, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, he refused to pronounce a railing judgment on him. 
It reminds me a lot of what David did when David was told he would have the throne and David now had just somebody standing between him and the throne and that was a rebellious king by the name of Saul. And many times, at least on two occasions, David had the every opportunity to take him out. God had said, you are the rightful king. You will be my king. You will be installed in Zion. And David, right there with a spear or a sword, could have taken Saul out. But he refused to do so. So he left that to the providence of God. And now we have this, this situation that was way before all of that where Michael and the, and the devil are disputing about the body of Moses. No doubt Michael could have asked God, say, God, just can, can I go ahead and just take care of Satan right now? I mean, we would all cheer for that. That would be a, a movie we would all want to see. Michael the archangel takes out Satan, film at 11, right? We would be about that. But he also knew, Michael did, that he was not to act beyond his own God-given domain and authority like the angels back in verse 6. Michael actually, listen, he showed respect for Satan's status and power because Satan had been God's greatest, highest created being. And because Michael would not be irreverent to this creature of God. It says he did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment. Interesting, that word is blasphemous judgment. It's related. It is the noun form of the verb in verse eight to revile rather than dare speak against God's creation. Michael simply says the Lord rebuke you. That is to say, I will let God deal with you in his own time, in his own way. I will not go outside the authority that God has given, uh, given to me, for that would be a rejection of God's revealed will and word. Do you see what Michael's doing? He will not go any further than God's word and will have called him to go. He would not be irreverent in that manner. Beloved, apostates will speak evil of God's messengers. They will say things to undermine their message, to discredit them and their message. Now, let me address something else that might come up in your mind and about this exchange between Michael and Satan. Isn't this kind of an unusual account? Right? You read this and you're like, I never read that in the Old Testament. And that's because it's not in the Old Testament. You didn't read it in the Old Testament. You can search the scriptures and you will never find a reference to this particular uh, 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 event. You can go to Deuteronomy chapter 34. You can read the death of Moses. He goes up on Mount Nebo. He has a conversation with the Lord as the Lord shows him everything. He dies. He's buried. That's the end of the story. There's nothing else to see. Move on. So where did Jude get his information? Now, before I say, let me just remind you that even if there were no other mention of this account, either biblical or extra biblical, um, uh, that's not a problem because Jude is actually writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We know, therefore, that what Jude writes is true regardless if we we have this account anywhere else in the scripture. Evidently, in antiquity, though, there was a reference to this account in an extra biblical book called The Assumption of Moses is a first century apocryphal Jewish writing that the Jews had put together the claim that the claimed to be additional teachings to the sayings of Moses. And evidently there was some reference to this in there. The problem is the, the fragments that we possess of that book date back only to the sixth century and they don't actually include this account. 
But it begs the question, if Jude did get this from a non-biblical, non-authoritative book to prove his point, what do we do with that? First of all, we can't be sure that Jude actually did quote from that book. Perhaps the book actually drew from Jude. That would be one thing. Secondly, as we've already noted, the Holy Spirit inspired Jude to write this, so we know the event took place. And third, even if Jude did quote from an extra-biblical source, it would not invalidate that what he said was true. Preachers often quote from extra-biblical sources to demonstrate their points, right? If I share an insight or illustration with you from John MacArthur or Paul Washer, it does not mean that the point is not true because I didn't share it from Scripture. In fact, I would generally share it because it does what? It actually reinforces something Scripture has already said. All of this is to say that we can be certain of the truth of this text, and Jude uses it as an illustration to point out to us that false teachers assume a position of authority in the church, an authority that not even arch, uh, the, Mike, the archangel Michael had the audacity to assume when confronting the devil. Don't assume that you have that responsibility of speaking against one of God's creatures. Thus, they reject God's authority. They assert that their dreams, their sensual behavior, and the reviling of angelic majesties, that is their authority. If I can speak against an angel, you better listen to me. And, and if that were so, you might want to, right? I mean, if I had the power to speak down angels and you saw it, you might think twice about crossing me, right? Like, you're next, buddy. Michael would not depend upon his own authority, but rather appeals to the authority of the Lord. In contrast, apostates assume their own authority to make blasphemous judgments about angelic beings, about God, about his word, about Christ, about humanity, even about sexuality. They are depending upon a source of authority other than the word of God. This is the general characteristic of apostate teachers in the church. They look, beloved, to their own dreams and visions. They look to other subjective things. They believe what they feel is right or what they desire to be right makes it right. And so we have so-called leaders in the church today. Let's just bring it to today. And they are appealing to modern philosophical concepts like critical race theory. That's apostate. We've got evangelical leaders somehow embracing a theory that undermines the very gospel. We have those that are appealing to psychological research like gender dysphoria or whatever else they deem helpful to push their agendas rather than depending upon what. What is it that you and I alone can depend on? The word of God. What makes apostates insidious, immoral, and irreverent is that their teachings are often subtle. Rather than blatantly denouncing scripture as their sole and final authority, an apostate appeals to selective texts in the scriptures to prove their unbiblical doctrine, not taking the whole of the biblical text as their authority. I read an article, and, and I'll, I'll bring this on Thursday night for those of you that uh, come on Thursday night. There was an article where someone, uh, some religious person said, arguments for and against abortion can be found in the scripture. So that those of you pro-life people, you think the scriptures prove your point, but there are verses that people who are for abortion can point to in the scripture. And I began to, I like, okay, I got to read this. And I read the verses that they used and the gross misinterpretation and misapplication of those. And I, uh, it said you can type a comment as a guest, and I wrote a pretty, I 
I wrote a railing judgment. Uh, but it didn't go through because I had to do something to reveal myself and I didn't want to reveal myself. But my point is we have people that are, that, that are selecting text in Scripture to, to uh, approve an unbiblical doctrine like abortion is okay, it's biblical somehow, rather than taking the whole of the biblical text as the authority. They cherry-pick the verses they want. They take them out of context. We find those... particularly in the prosperity gospel doing this very same thing. They find a few verses where they can say, hey, look, here's where God blessed this person monetarily, so let's all get on board and we can just ask God for whatever we want. Uh, No, read the whole thing. They choose their text selectively. Another way in which apostates show their irreverence is by communicating some kind of embarrassment when they come across certain biblical texts or are confronted with biblical doctrines that, well, it just makes them or others feel uncomfortable. I know I've shared this, but there was a, a preacher I came in contact with in, in uh, Bella Vista, and we were talking about preaching, and I asked him about what he was preaching through. And uh, I, had, I, at the time, this was many years ago, I was preaching through the book of Romans, and he said, I would never teach the book of Romans. I said, why? And he said, oh, just too much controversy, too much uh, issues there. He said, I'll never teach Romans, and I never teach the book of Revelation. And I just thought, I was a young preacher, and I just thought, I don't know that you should be a preacher. And that's true. He was what? You're not going to preach it. If you're embarrassed by what the word of God says, that's apostate thinking. We should not be embarrassed by what the text says. By that, they undermine scripture then, not always overtly, sometimes uh, uh, covertly, by sheepishly declaring that teachings on hell or sexuality uh, were not the point of the Bible. Perhaps we can just ignore those altogether. There's been calls to have a moratorium on preaching against homosexuality until we can determine whether it's really taught against in the Bible. Like, uh, no. Love, the point is that apostates will always find ways to avoid what Scripture says. They are fulfilling the very question of Satan, did God really say? They irreverently handle God's truth so as to allow immoral behavior. And this, beloved, is what makes apostates so insidious and dangerous. We must be on guard and take note of those persons. We must see how they depend upon other sources of, their, uh, of authority rather than the only authority we have for faith and practice. Well, let me remind you of a promise as we close. The first is found in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. And this is a promise that reminds us that the only authority we have and the only authority we need is not just what we have. The only authority you need is found in God. Notice what Peter writes. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God, in the knowledge of, our, of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us most of the things we need. Is that what it says? Has granted to us everything pertaining to life, how we live, and godliness, how we need to be transformed by the righteousness of Christ through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. To that end, let us heed the very call of the Apostle Paul who gave this charge to a young man named Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, we read these words. Pay close attention to yourself, that is, watch your life and your behavior, and to your teaching, that is, your doctrine, what you believe. Persevere in these things. Sounds like 
contend earnestly for them. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. That is the way we fight against apostasy. What do you need to do? What do I need to do? We need to pay much closer attention to what, how we live and to what we believe because that will be one of the keys in keeping us from becoming an apostate. Let us close in prayer. Father God, we thank you for these words that reveal to us the, the character, the nature of those who are apostate. Father God, our great prayer in this place would be that there would be none in this room, none amongst this congregation who would be apostates. Father, we recognize that this is given to us, though, to remind us that there's always that propensity, there's always that, that temptation for us to fall away, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Father, may we be those who, again, like the songwriter, says, take my heart, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. May we always look to you and to you alone, to Christ and Christ alone, by grace and grace alone, by faith and faith alone, by scripture and scripture alone, to be that which would allow us to do that for which you have called us, to bring you glory for God's glory alone. Father, we thank you for these reminders. And now as we come to celebrate what Christ has accomplished for us in redeeming us out of this, this sinfulness, out of this desire to move away from you and calling us to yourself, I pray, Father God, that you would allow us to do what Scripture has called us to do, to first examine ourselves, to, to make sure that we are ready and that we have properly prepared ourselves to partake of this memorial, this reminder that Christ died for sin, so why would we continue in sin? Father, help us to confess any sin, to recognize that, uh, to recognize that you are faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We desire to come now to the table with purity of thought, purity of motive, pure hands, pure minds. We desire this so that we might then go and live a life that demonstrates the reality that Christ has saved us, redeemed us. Christ is in us, our hope of glory. And so, Father, be honored as we now seek to worship you uh, through this, this uh, memorial as we celebrate Christ's death and resurrection. We ask and pray in Jesus' name.